I have yet to meet a B2B seller who was not trying to create value for their prospects by selling them their product. B2B sellers believe in their products and they believe that the customers will get a positive ROI, but you just can't jump to that so quickly. You need to build to that. That's Jeremy Donovan, SVP of sales strategy at SalesLoft. What if your prospects started asking you for meetings? How would that impact your outreach process? In this episode, Jeremy sits down with Dan Lappin to discuss how creating value for your prospects will do just that. Let's go. I'm Kylie Schmitz. I'm Dan Lappin, and this is Breaking Sales, a nonconformist take on rejecting the sales status quo. Join the Lappin 180 team as we break the tried and died sales tactics and techniques that are failing you and your prospects. I think a good place to start would be just a little bit on your background and what you're working on now. When people ask me about my background, I often start by saying I have an extreme degree of imposter syndrome and may be out an outright fraud with respect to sales. And the reason is that I started my career as a semiconductor engineer and it took me a while to get to sales. I was always selling as a kid, but I don't know if mangoes and baseball cards completely counts. But what I've tried to do is think about those coaches who weren't necessarily players at the professional level or went into coaching without having been great players and became great coaches. So that's really the philosophy I've taken. And I consider myself a pretty extreme student of sales strategy. I worked for Gartner for 16 years, and that can be a sales cycle of weeks to year plus, depending on the size of the relationship. And then worked for a series of B2B software companies. Right now I work for SalesLoft, which is a sales engagement provider. And it is exactly what you described. We have an SMB segment, right? Which could be on the order of weeks or months, a sales cycle. And then we also sell to very large enterprises, Fortune 10 companies. And those sales cycles, yeah, are easily a year plus. So when you say sales engagement, can you go a little bit into what comes to mind for you and, and how you define sales engagement? Yeah. Think about a telephone, right? So a telephone is just a medium and the, the message that, convey, that gets conveyed through it varies, right? One telephone call you can classify as telemarketing spam calls. And there's nothing inherently good or good or evil about the phone, but they're using it for evil. In contrast, I can have a conversation with my mom and that's a very warm conversation, right? The message there is an essential one. The same thing can be true of sales engagement platforms, right? How it gets used is what's important. We strive for that one-to-one empathy to the greatest extent possible. We also strive for value to the greatest extent possible. So by way of example, I'm sure a lot of listeners are on the receiving end of sales prospecting emails and so many of them look the same. They're basically like, hey, I'm Jeremy. I work for Sales Loft, we do X. Are you free for 15 minutes? And that's atrocious, right? Their brains are tuned to just filter all that stuff out. So we realized that's a problem. And what we did is we invested in ways to add legitimate top of the funnel value. And I'm, I'm real specific about that because when I get bottom of funnel stuff early, a case study or a testimonial or an ROI calculator, something just completely self-serving to the vendor, that's an instant delete. So we went and tried to, and created basically some top of the funnel assets that give value that basically say, Hey, whether or not you take a meeting, 
whether or not you ever work with SalesLoft, I want to give you something of ongoing value. And they have super basic, almost humorously basic names. So one is called emailgrader.com. And as you would expect, it grades emails. So you can put email text in there. It will use algorithms, data science, based on the emails that are anonymized, abstracted, so no person identifiable information that our customers have been sending emails with and which ones are successful and which ones are not. And it will grade your email and tell you which words and phrases are effective and, and not. We have a subject line grader that does the same thing. So our reps now can use that when they prospect and they can instead say, hey, Dan, it's it's Jeremy from SalesLoft. thought you might find our subject line grader valuable for tuning the emails you're sending to your prospects. Enjoy. A week later, a month later, whatever it is, hey, Dan, hope you enjoyed the subject line grader. Here's an email grader. And at some point, you you earn the right to to a meeting. And I really want the prospect to respond like, hey, I'm ready. I want to learn more. If I give value, then there is an implicit expectation that's set that you may return value to me. There's no question right now that prospects, businesses are being inundated with outreach, just crushed. I hear it from our clients all the time. I'm experiencing it. A lot of peers of mine who own businesses, they're experiencing it. Everybody's asking for something though. And I just, I really think the idea of giving sets a different precedent and you give without asking in the beginning. Yeah. On the give side, a lot of it is like, how do you give and what do you give? And we, we talked a little bit about this giving stuff that is not bottom of funnel that you, you really have to think about what that is. I, I talked about these assets that we created and that sort of thing takes time and money to do. What do you do if you are a rep selling and you're told to give value, but your company is not necessarily providing you with legitimate top of funnel value? I think what you do then is you become a curator, right? That you don't necessarily have to create stuff to be able to give value to prospects. So if you're selling into the insurance industry, maybe you subscribe to some Google alerts or whatever, read blogs and whatever is going on in the insurance industry, you look for studies and so on, and you just cull statistics and actionable insights out of those things. And then you reach out and in the same thing as, hey, Dan, it's Jeremy. I just read this study about how the insurance industry will be affected as we emerge from the pandemic. And my key takeaway was XYZ. Here's a link to the article from respected third party. Hope you enjoy, right? How often do reps do that? Very, very rarely. And, and those that do earn the trust and build the accumulated reciprocity that will get them a meeting. And at the end of the day, I have yet to meet a B2B seller who was not trying to create value for their prospects by selling them their product. B2B sellers believe in their products and they believe that the customers will get a positive ROI, but you just can't jump to that so quickly. You need to build to that. That's a valid point. When you give an article, when you give a case study or a white paper, what becomes extremely valuable to your prospects too is if you tell them what's the one, two, or three major points and reasons why you thought that they might find the paper or the case study or the white paper valuable. So we use SalesLoft and 
when Tom sends out a link to our podcast, here is the recent podcast we did on this subject. And he'll timestamp two areas that he thinks that audience might find value. So not only is he giving the podcast, but he's actually trying to help the audience make it really simple for them to engage by timestamping what parts of the podcast might be of most interest. I think that's another way to to try to really engage your prospects throughout this noise. Jeremy, when you think about the misuse now of automation and tools like SalesLoft, what do you see some of the mistakes that people are doing with it? What do you see? How do you see that playing out? There was actually an interesting segue, I think, from reciprocity to this question, which is if you look at sales emails, right, that idea of reciprocity is being created because you as a seller have invested time, your time and energy and wisdom into the buyer. And wind the clock back, whatever, five, 10 years, it was super novel to see your first name in the subject line, right? If I'm prospecting you and I put Dan in the, in the subject line, that was incredibly novel because it meant that a human took time to write your name in the subject line. Wind the clock forward 10 years and that's just a dynamic tag that a machine does. And now it's almost like anti-reciprocity. It's like laziness. And so I, I think these things evolve over time. So misuse... I think is going too quickly for the meeting without giving value first. Misuse is doing things that humans now know are done by machines and only doing those things. It's fine to use machines for augmentation to help out, but you still, I think, should invest in, in your prospects. So another example of this would be like anything that just, hey, Dan, I see you are insert job title at insert company and just you go on from that. So I think that's a mis misuse. Another misuse as our data shows is don't do anything that looks or smells like marketing automation. And more concretely, that's avoid any, almost any HTML type of treatment in your email. Don't change the font, don't change the color, don't highlight, don't underline, don't bold, like just don't do any of that crazy stuff. The best prospecting emails look like a, a truly personal email that you sent to a colleague in your workplace. So those things evolve over time. So if, if you were talking to Beck, she would say, hey, if I were prospecting you, Dan, I would, I listened to one of your recent podcasts and I would say, oh, hey, Dan, in that podcast you did with Jane Doe at, in minute 23, you said, and then she'll quote you back to you. And then she'll segue into whatever she sells and then go from there. So like a machine can't practically do what I just described at scale yet. So that right now is, is an amazing thing. Five years down the road, when everybody's mobile phone can do that, then that becomes a non-novel thing and you have to do something else. Go back to the bullet points. That one intrigues me because I know we've seen statistics here where I think it's something like, 80 to 90% of emails, intro emails, are initially read via mobile device. And so spacing, brevity, and the use of bullet points becomes visually more appealing. So I'm just interested in that. Yeah. So we found that the optimal email length, I, I can tell people the exact number and it's around 50 words, but it, it varies. So anything basically up to about a hundred words is okay. 
you're going to get above average reply rates. Once you go over 100 words, your reply rates dramatically drop. So when you're in the 101 to 200 word range, you should expect your reply rates to drop 24% from whatever they were. And, and it pretty much stays low after that. So you just keep your, to your exact point, which is like optimize for, for mobile when you're writing your emails. And that means don't exceed 100 words. If you can stay even lower in that 50-ish word mark, you're in good shape. And then, yeah, absolutely readability is critical in mobile, but I think you can create that readability with short sentences and spacing. The reason you don't want to use bullets is because then it looks and smells and feels like automation. But again, I, the LinkedIn post that we hate to love, love to hate, whichever your perspective, right? They're like five word sentence, five word sentence. They're, they're almost annoying in that respect, but we are we still gravitate to them because they're easy to consume. And I think you can get away with the same thing. And the exact data on bullets actually is if you use bullets in an email, your reply rate drops 44%. A better thing to do if you need to do something like that is actually just to use a, a dash, like a hyphen at the beginning. And even that is worse than no hyphen, but the hyphens, if you need to use them, your reply rates drop 11%. So it's better It's better than bullets. And I think, again, it's I think bullets are are good when you're already in communication with somebody, but the bullets are bad in an email one. So when you think about these rules, I'll call them these parameters, is there any kind of segmentation going on via title that you guys have been able to determine? So the answer is yes, we can segment our data by industry, size, job level. So far, the data that I've looked at has really just been about what do reply rates look like by those different macro categories. And a question I had asked our CEO, which was, how do you want to be prospected? He said, I will respond if two things are true. One is that the person tells me something I don't know about my business, or they've attempted to tell me something I don't know about my business. And then two is that I have a reasonable expectation that the person and the company they represent are going to be able to help me. The other one is, I'll, I'll refer to it as bottom-up prospecting. And it's also another kind of quote-unquote slow prospecting approach if you want to get to the executive. So like rather than go right to the decision maker, what you do is you go talk to five individual contributors on their team and then just chat with those people, right? You're not trying to sell them. You don't want anything from them other than to understand a day in their life. And you're looking for inefficiencies, opportunities that exist to help those people. And then you can approach the decision maker and you can say, hey, I spoke to, and if the people, if the individual contributors are willing to share their names, great, you should ask them one way or the other. But you could say at, at the very worst, hey, I talked to five folks on your XYZ team with, without betraying their name. And I learned a few things that I think would be of you know, interest to you, surprising to you, whatever language you want to use, I'd love to share those with you. It ties everything we're talking about together, right? The, the, the reciprocity element, how much time did I invest talking to your people independently with the value piece as well, and the authenticity and genuineness that that is something that a, a machine could not have done. If you're in a business that represents a slightly more high volume, transactional type of process, how you use automation and how you use tools like SalesLoft, I feel like it's a little bit different than 
if you are selling something complex, just by receiving lots of emails and LinkedIn invites and all that, there is some slight nuances. What's your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Context is everything with respect to every answer. Think about three different worlds, right? One is you're prospecting into a hyper-transactional segment. I think a point of sale, for example, is a, is a really good example of this. If you're like a square, whatever you swipe your swipe your credit card on when you go pick up your takeout these days, that's super transactional, right? And you probably don't need uh, to take the time to personalize. It's not even worth it. If you were to personalize everything, you would be lo you'd lose. And the prospects understand what you're selling. They need what you're selling. It's a pretty competitive, it's almost commoditized, right? So in that context, yeah, like you're going to do effectively zero personalization. And you may even just say, hey, I'm going to be at your pizza shop next Tuesday is, is 10 a.m. Good for you outside of the pizza rush time. And then you go right in the middle zone, which is pretty standard where maybe you just personalize, customize, tune, add value in the first email. Always adding value. Try to add some value. But I, th I think taking the time to actually personalize or customize the first email, maybe that's it. And after that, you just pick up more automation after that. And then in the extreme sense, is you're prospecting the must-win whale, the Fortune 10 or 500, whatever it is, company for you that you just don't want, you can't burn that through laziness. In that sense, you're going to look at personalize everything that you do. And maybe you'll take that bottom-up prospecting approach. Yeah, it absolutely depends on context and your ROI maximizing in your prospecting effort. A lot of our audience tends to call or wants to connect with that at minimum mid-level, but more often that VP executive C-suite level prospect. Is there like a combination that you would recommend of personalization in the touch points and using automation to engage? Because it's probably not just one or the other. There's going to be a happy medium. Is there any best practices around that you could share? Yeah, it is both. With executives, you're probably going to tune the touch pattern a bit and you'll have to figure it out for you again in your context of, of what the mix is between calls and emails and, and social touches. Among those three, right, I find execs, you're far less likely to get them via social. They just almost never look at social. They're just too inundated. It's too overwhelming for them. And if they, maybe their assistant might clean things up just looking for a legitimate highly important things to triage. Like I want to become a customer or I am a customer and I have this problem and I can't get to somebody. I think those are good things for executives to monitor for. So you're probably more like email and phone. And if anything else, I think you might even be a little heavier phone, interestingly enough, to get to those folks. The other best practice, again, is I'll just come back to what the guidance our CEO gave when I asked him this question, which is you have to be legitimately offering them something Tell them something about their business that they don't know. That's the best advice I can give people. And if you just do the same old generic garbage, that's not going to work. Or it's the, should I be talking to XYZ person? 99% of executives will not take the time to click a link, will not take the time to open a white paper. They just don't have time for that. Tell them the one thing that is actionable for them or their team. I'll call it forward-worthy right? Because they're not even going to necessarily do anything with it is make your email forward worthy. That's the best you can hope for. So I have a question, just your gut reaction. Is sales a numbers game? I'm a statistician and engineer by trade. So I think it's a yes and, right? As someone asked me this morning, they were asking me about SDR to AE ratios because they were trying to figure out when do I need to hire more SDRs. 
people who reach out to to help schedule meetings for their AEs. And they were asking me, like, when do we hire more SDRs? And I gave them some numbers. They said, okay, we start with your AEs quota and based on win rates and qualification rates and average selling price and all that, you get to a number. But then there's the and, right? Which is and you have to make sure that those people are well-trained and enabled to do the right things. So productivity equals efficiency times effectiveness. I'm going to call efficiency, I'm going to call that the numbers game side. And it means how much activity can I do per person per unit of time. The effectiveness side is the qualitative, is the non-numbers game side, which says you can look at any group. And we have President's Club or Winner's Circle for a reason, because yes, there is some randomness of people who get lucky, but those people who are in President's Club or Winner's Circle year after year, they're highly effective. So there's obviously more than numbers in it. There's also process, which is measurable and definable, but there's also that the sort of third intangible element is what makes Jane a better seller than Sally when... They've been enabled in exactly the same way. They're following the same process. They have the same amount of activity. What makes Jane that much more effective? Give me some of your thoughts on effectiveness. I keep a list. It's called Best AEs, a file. And whenever I talk to folks, I always ask, who's the best AE you know? Or who's the most recent top salesperson in your company? And then I go talk to those people. And I had a conversation with one of these guys yesterday. Guys and gals happened to be a guy yesterday. And he had relocated from the US to the UK and he was a top seller in the US, moved to the UK, was a top seller there. And I asked him, what's one of the bigger differences you've noticed between selling in the US versus the UK? And he said, like, a lot of people, when they ask me that question, they think I'm going to answer something about GDPR. And he said, no, selling is actually really similar. He said, the biggest difference is in the US, buyers expect sellers to be subject matter experts. In the UK, buyers understand you're a salesperson and that a big part of your responsibility is to connect them with the subject matter experts in your company. And tying that back to the effectiveness piece, there is a learning curve. And the longer you stay in your company and the more you understand about the prospects and their use cases and the way they get value and build relationships that you can do the connections we talked about earlier, those are the things that make you more effective over time. So one thing basically just is that learning curve and the development of subject matter expertise that happens over time. The other thing is when I ask these best AEs, like what do they do? One is that they are, they're like mercilessly efficient and with their time that they know how to say no to requests. And a lot of times they don't even want to talk to me because I am not necessarily going to help them win the deals that they are working on right now that guarded protectiveness that they have over their time is one thing I've noticed. The other thing I've noticed is successful reps take control of deals and know at all times what the next steps are. They just know their deals better than the average rep. And then the third thing, which which is equally important, is I ask these top reps, like, tell me the deal you lost, the deal that got away. And they start saying like, I lost because I didn't have the right relationship with the economic buyer, or I didn't understand their and influence their decision criteria, or I wasn't aware of the competition in the account. But where they go from there is if I, as a top rep, look across my deals and I ask myself why I lost, it was never one thing. It was that I didn't do everything. And what these top reps are doing is every week, 
they are asking themselves, they're like reassessing, rescoring where they are and what gaps they have on every single one of those deal health framework elements. That is what distinguishes the top reps, especially in those longer term deals from the average or low performing reps. Jeremy, when you think about emails and you think about what's working, what's not, and the data behind it, what are some of the top things that you're seeing tactically that you might be able to share with our listeners? Some of these things are things that are working now and may not work forever. And, and some of them are things that I think have a, a, a more like core psychological reason behind them. So let's start with the email subject line. Today, you can avoid using the person's first name in the email subject line. That does not work anymore. What interestingly does work is to have your email subject line just be one or two words. And the, the magic one or two words is actually just your company name, not their company name, but your company name. And the next level question I'm often asked about that one is, well, what if my company is not well known? And I say, great, that's actually better because it induces curiosity. Moving into the body of the email, this is one that will change over time. When we first did the study, hey, so hey, Dan, was much more effective than doing anything else. In fact, it was 11% higher reply rate if you did that versus if you had just used their first name with no greeting at all, you actually had a 17% lower reply rate. I think hey is one of those that will wear off over time, whereas a subject line thing should last longer. And one thing for international listeners is you should change to local language, right? So if you're prospecting in, in Spain, you say hola. If you're prospecting wherever in whatever the local context is, you use the local context. That's the kind of touch that machines don't yet necessarily do. And you want to contextualize in that way. Getting into the body of the email, one thing on the body, which was... A little counterintuitive to me was whether you should end your first sentence with a period, a question mark, or an exclamation mark. Now, I'll throw the period out because that's the standard way. So would a question mark or an exclamation mark, which one of those might be good or might both of them be bad? What do you think? I would go with the question mark only because if it's a question phrased empathetically, that might engage me. But if they put an exclamation mark at the end, it makes me feel like they're yelling at me. So your hypothesis matches what mine was going into it. And uh, you actually had more refinement than I did because I didn't necessarily think about how empathetic the question is. But independent of the empathy thing, the answer flies in the face of your hypothesis and my hypothesis, which is if you have an exclamation mark, you actually have a 42% higher response rate based on the end of the first sentence. If you have a question mark, you have 15% lower than average response rate. And, and I think this gets a pattern interrupt idea, which is it's so unusual to get an email with an exclamation mark. And yeah, it's, it is attention grabbing as exclamation marks are. So you have to do it with empathy. It can't just be an exclamation mark tied to a, a hyperbolic non-empathetic statement. It also shouldn't, you just shouldn't throw a question mark on something that should just have a period, be genuine. But used properly, it, it actually has, has a greater impact. So you have that first sentence with the exclamation point. Is that a sentence based on the usage of I or based on the usage of you? Or does it matter? I think one of the reasons you're asking that is another commonly held hypothesis, which is when you communicate with prospects, it should be you-centric, right? That's what we're taught. In fact, if you start your first sentence of your email with you, you have a 40% lower response rate. If you start with we, it's very similar. It's a 37% lower than average response rate. 
if the first word of your first sentence starts with I, you have a 16% higher response rate. So that flies absolutely in the face of what sales trainers teach people. There are great sales trainers. There are sales trainers who have data, who don't have data. And in this case, like the conventional wisdom is don't start with I, but in fact, it's actually better. What would be an appropriate use of I? So here's one I, I sent yesterday. Hey, Dan, I was reflecting on our conversation or, hey, Dan, I was thinking about you and I thought this piece of content might be relevant. My key takeaway was X. And there's empathy, right? I, I think the reason the emails with you don't work is because the, my reaction when I see you as the first word in the email is you don't know me. What gives you the right to it to address me as the, with the first word as you you, you have not earned the right to presume what you know about me that early in the email. Broadening that, by the way, don't use only I, don't use only you, use I's and use as you would conversationally. And I, I think that also gets at the empathy, which is if we are having a live conversation, in our live conversation, it's going to be a blend of I's and U's. And anything at the extreme spectrums of this is ineffective. So I actually want to liberate AEs to just relax when they write their emails. And it's not an active act of doing. It is a passive act of letting yourself speak as a human to another human in an empathetic way, which doesn't take effort. That's a passive act. Just be you. Jeremy, how should people connect with you? I, I pretty much accept all connections from people who look like legitimate human beings on LinkedIn. So just connect with me on LinkedIn. You don't even have to personalize the invite. As long as you look like a human, I will connect with you. Thanks for listening to Breaking Sales. If you want to get engaged with us outside of this podcast, be sure to go to our website, lapin180.com. That's lappin dot com. And there you'll find information on upcoming workshops, different events we're doing throughout the United States, ways to engage with us on social media, as well as a form where you can suggest topics or guests for the podcast. We want to hear from you, so don't be shy. Kylie out. All right. Do we have another episode? <laughs>